You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, Max. Hey, Evan. Great to see you. <laughs> so nice to see you here today. Rarely see you. I'm also here. Also, I'm here. Are you done with your phone now? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, you guys, I, I have uh, someone on the show this week who I've been trying to get on the show for a long time, Kira Feldman. Hey. Kira Feldman is a uh, freelance reporter. She's one of these people. There are Trash chronicler. Yes, she is a trash chronicle. That is why I had her on the show this week. Uh, she just wrote this piece. Uh, it was funded by the Investigative Fund. It was run on ProPublica, and it is all about the uh, world of private trash collection in New York. Do you guys... Do you, I didn't actually know this. Evan used to run our old office, so he definitely knows about this. We, we had private trash collection. Yeah. All Every business in New York City has private trash collection. The only thing that is picked up by the city is residential trash, and there's this whole world at night... Of private trash collection. It's high like speed. High speed. It is the fifth most fatal profession in America, picking up private trash in New York City. Uh, and it was mob run for basically the entire lifespan of private trash collection in New York. Um, and Kira went super deep into this world. She spent a lot of time riding around uh, on private trash collection trucks, a lot of time with the like very young very vulnerable men who do this work. Uh, spent a while trying to figure out whether or not the mob is still uh, entangled in this industry. It's like the deadliest catch, but on land. It, it is a really wild story. It's like one of those, it was a holy shit story. Like I just couldn't believe it as I kept reading it. And uh, so she has all this other work. She's one of these people, one of these like rare journalists who like has a story once a year. And yeah. It's like sometimes it's in Harper's. She wrote for this place, uh, This Land Press about Oklahoma. She's shouts, had like shouts to This Land Press. She's had multiple stories like on our best of the year list. She's an amazing writer, but she kind of pops up in these different places and they're always like really different stories. And so we talked a little bit about how you navigate that like career path. Uh, but mostly I just asked her question after question about this trash story because it blew my mind. If you're looking to navigate your own career path, um, maybe get up your creds as an expert with an email newsletter. Uh, start yourself a MailChimp newsletter. Start sending out the stuff that is important to you in your own field and build the following and succeed. All right. Thank you to MailChimp. They are our sponsor, as always. 
And now here's Max with Kira Feldman. Hey, Kira Feldman. Hey, how's it going, Max? Uh, it's going great. I'm uh, I'm so happy that we're here. Me too. This is a dream. It's a uh, Sunday afternoon. We've got all the time in the world. Oh, it's very nice. <laughs> so I feel very relaxed is my point. It feels like a therapy room. Can I just say that? Sure. What's on your mind? What do you want to talk about today? What do you want to talk about? <laughs> Here's what I want to talk about. <laughs> um, I have uh, admired your work for a long time. I have wanted to have you on the show for a long time, but a story came out a couple of weeks ago on the private garbage collection world of New York City that blew me away, and I sent you a message immediately and was like, you got to come on the show and talk about it. So that's the number one thing I want to talk to you about is this garbage story, but I also want to talk to you about how you work because I don't get it. There's a bunch of stories of yours on long form, like, I don't know, seven or eight or something, and they're from different publications. They are all, like, really ambitious and I don't think there are a lot of articles that you've written in the last, like, seven years that aren't on the site, which means, like, it feels to me, at least looking back through your archives, like, you only take these, like, big swings and they land in different places. And I don't totally understand how that works. So that's my first question, I think, is um, how do you do that? I mean, I guess I I follow the things that make me so excited about that I I can't let them go. And um, I think I'm probably stealing a phrase from somebody else, but each story kind of feels like building an elaborate mind palace <laughs> where uh, where it's kind of like creating this or kind of going into this whole world that's kind of of your own enthusiasm. Every time I have set out to do a smaller scale story, it's turned into something that's, you know, rapidly over 10,000 words. And the garbage story, actually, I was like, oh, no, I think I can do this as a small story. Like, this is just going to be, you know, a night out, mm -hmm. uh, you know, following a good character. And it, it, this is going to be like my first, you know, small scale story in a while. Then that didn't work. <laughs> that that didn't work out. I want to talk about that story, but I think yeah, yeah, I actually yeah. meant like in a pragmatic sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <clears throat> e economically, how do you do that? Ah, well, you can't really do that is <laughs> the short answer. And I, w I wish someone had told me that you can't do that. It took me a long time to figure it out. See, I was hoping <laughs> that you had some like secret freelancer key that uh, no that allowed key. that allowed you to just do one big story a year and make that work financially. No, there's no key. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, so how do you do it? So uh, let's see. So first of all, you can get grants from. I get grants from the Investigative Fund, and my long-term editor is a woman named Esther Kaplan, who is brilliant and amazing, and has just like gotten every story I've wanted to do, and kind of held my hand along the way for sometimes years <laughs> as as it takes for the story come out to come out. But you have to, it's just not possible. You know, even if you're getting like $2 a word, it doesn't work out. So you have to have jobs on the side. So I did research for people for a long time. I did fact checking. I had like little weird gigs. I did research for like a corporate private investigator. You know, I worked on documentary films for a while. But then ultimately I realized like, wait, this actually doesn't work. Like you just need a job. <laughs> so uh, not even the like piecemeal freelance side hustle menagerie works. So it, 
when you know young writers you know write me really lovely emails saying that they want to talk about doing what I do, I usually panic and I say like, oh my god, don't do it. You're at, you know, there's not a way to actually make it work financially. Like, you can kind of scrape by if you live super cheap and also come from privilege and don't have college loans to pay off. So yeah, my parents are doctors. I don't have college loans to pay off. So like that is the number one thing that makes freelance writing doable. Um, and that should be acknowledged, you know? I, I got to say that's uh, pretty refreshing to hear. I feel like uh, not everyone just says that. I mean, people should say that first. It's not like, oh, I work really hard. And I mean, yes. And like there are people who do make it work by having like a part time job that like, you know, pays the bills and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you can kind of make it work for a couple years by getting like grants here and there. But then you're you end up spending like over half of your time applying for grants like you may or may not get. So um, for the past year, I've had a full time job and for complicated reasons. We can't talk about it on the podcast, but uh, the benefits are amazing. (laughs) (laughs) If your boss is listening, hi, boss. He's a great guy. I took lots of leave to work on this garbage story. Is that how you have to balance it? Like if you have a full-time job and you want to be doing this kind of big, ambitious stuff? That's actually a question I would love to hear other people on the podcast talk about. Like, how did they do this? Because I want to do it better. Um, Yeah, I mean... You know, because you don't have energy or time to do stuff. You know, yes, there's only so much time you have to do, like, nights and weekends. I think I took something like six weeks at least of paid and unpaid leave to kind of finish working on the story. But I don't don't really know how how it works. And I think, you know, how to put this, in the last, like, couple years, there have been some kind of, like, dark, dark nights of the soul where, you know, you're talking with your other writer friends being like, there's no career path in this. Like there used to be a career path in doing kind of long form journalism or investigative reporting, but now there are like five jobs. (laughs) So, so I wish I had the answer. Um, So what do you say when those young writers get in touch and ask how to do this? I tell them all my feelings. <laughs> um, no, I tell them, I try to be as honest as possible. I tell them how miserable it is a lot of the time because I don't think that they should have like a rosy view of like how it is possible or not possible. The answer is like, yeah, you can like, you can get small grants, but you know, those grants are go- probably going to be under $10,000 and you know, that can last you for a while, but that doesn't really work if you're trying to you what know make it? a career out of it like that can make like one story happen yeah. but yeah How... i tell them to get paid internships i'm like get on the paid internship train like I don't know how that train works because when I graduated college there was no such thing as a paid internship and so like actually there are things about the industry that I think are better and like now it's considered like shameful if you don't pay your interns right there's more paid internships but far far fewer jobs right so you know there's a a way to kind of enter it but then what do you do what does it feel like to just um constantly like crush the dreams of young people (laughs) (laughs) Um, it actually feels great (laughs) Uh, no but I think I tell them the things that I wish people had told me yeah there's this 
mythology that if you just hustle hard enough, you can make it work. And I think that that is a lie. <laughs> and I think I'm sure there are freelance writers who, who are listening being like, yeah, but like you're only trying to write like 10,000 word stories and like, you know, other people will write like a little like lots of little things that will pay you three hundred dollars. And and maybe I'm just like not good at that. Like whenever I tried to do that, I'd be like, ah, man, looks like I'm on like another year long project. <laughs> so maybe I'm, I was just bad at it, you know? Um, OK, so <laughs> now that we've established there's no future in this work at all, uh, let's move on to the sort of sunny world of private garbage collection in New York City. You know, what I will say is that when I first started um, working on this story, when I first wanted to do it, I was seeing it as a story that kind of investigative reporters will call a house of horrors story. You're looking for all of the worst things you can find. You know, you're looking for all of the severed fingers. You're looking for all of the people who died. You're looking for which companies are doing the very worst things. And, you know, that is what investigative reporting is. But over time, I came to actually see that the story was about something else. You know, it's a making it in New York story. It's a story about people who are up against the odds and, you know, trying to get a break. But that was like something that I really struggled with working on the story is like, like at first I was kind of how I was approaching people was just like, you know, tell me all the bad things. Like, tell me about your near death experiences. Tell me all that. I mean, like not that's not actually how I would ask those questions. (laughs) But, like, that was ultimately what I was trying to get from people. But really, what I came to see about it was that it was a story about the world of men and work. And that these guys have, I mean, people have so many feelings about the the work that they do, and they don't have the opportunity to talk about them, actually. Well, especially, I mean, it's an unseen part of New York. And so it's a whole world of the city and and this thing that makes the city work that no one really sees. Can we just start by you giving like a little like synopsis of what that piece was? Like what the world is? Yeah. I mean, it's like one of those things where like you just assume that those municipal workers that you see during the day picking up, you know, the trash in front of your apartment building, that they're the ones, you know, they're the garbage men. They pick up all all the trash in the city. That's what you figure. That is what you figure. Um, But there's actually this whole other world that mostly happens overnight. And there are about something like over 250 companies that pick up all the garbage and recycling from all of the businesses across New York City. So um, who's your who's your private carter, Max? I don't know. I was thinking about it when I was reading the piece because we're in a building. You and I are sitting in a building right now. It's like a a small office building. And I don't think we're billed for it. It's just like incorporated into our rent. I I don't know who it is. Right. You probably have like a building manager or someone who just handles that. Yeah. And yeah, out of sight, out of mind. Who knows? Out of sight, out of mind. If you had asked me in... December who did it I would have been like I don't know the city picks it up on Thursdays right right, exactly and it uh the pickups are almost totally at night right mostly yeah there's some um businesses can schedule it um kind of based on their needs but most people will do it over overnight like there's some 
some places we do it during the day. Um, there's uh, so the different kinds of garbage trucks, which I know you didn't ask about, but I would love to tell you about. I'm um, all ears. I'm, I'm like actually like a six-year-old now. Like me and my my nephew have a lot in common. Is that like we both we hear a garbage truck coming and we both are both of our heads kind of turn in excitement. Um, so a packer garbage truck is the kind of garbage truck you mostly think of when you think of a garbage truck. It kind of packs it in, right? The other kind is a roll-off garbage truck, and that's where the the big, we would call it a, a dumpster, but it's actually called a box. Uh, it kind of rolls off onto the street. Um, so the roll-off trucks, a lot of them do their work during the day because they'll go to, like, Home Depot or something, and Home Depot will, like, have their own garbage compactor, you know, and then they'll pick up the box you know I, oh i can i can i can i am going deep into no, the rabbit deep into the rabbit hole um one thing that i actually did while i was working on the story uh to kind of like see because at a certain point you can go so deep into this world where like every little detail seems like remarkable and amazing but like is it really remarkable and amazing to anyone who's you know not deep down in the rabbit hole with you um is that sometimes I will be the person at the party who just sucks and <laughs> and you can kind of like test people out like either you don't talk about work at a party which is like probably best <laughs> advisable that's advisable or you can kind of like treat it like a test audience to kind of like you know see what makes people's eyes glaze over <laughs> and what actually gets people's attention this is actually like a thing that when I'm not crushing the dreams of young writers, sometimes... You, you tell them to be that person at a party. It's good advice, though, because you can see what parts of the story, you know, resonates with you or you think mm-hmm. uh, it should be in a story. You can kind of, like, test it on other people and, like, and I'll pay attention to how how I tell it in conversation because oftentimes that's the way that you want to put it into the story. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for a second to tell you quickly about our sponsors this week. We got a new sponsor. I am super juiced. I am excited that RX Bar is sponsoring the long form podcast. Here's why I'm excited I have been eating RX Bars basically every morning for breakfast for like six months. And uh, they got in touch. They wanted to sponsor the show. They were like, Have you ever had an RX Bar? And I was like, Yes. I have been eating them every morning for six months. And they said, well, we're still going to send you some free ones. And I said, thank you, because you're just saving me money because I am totally committed to these. I have tried every protein bar in the world. Uh, I like being healthy, but I want to do it in the easiest possible way. And uh, here's some things about other protein bars I've tried. Uh, One, they taste terrible. And two, they're not actually that healthy. They're full of all kinds of artificial ingredients. RX bars, straight up, three egg whites, two dates, six almonds. That is it. There's no extra stuff. It's all natural. And it turns out when you just put uh, real food into these bars, they taste real good. I have uh, four flavors that I rotate between. I like the coconut chocolate. I love the chocolate sea salt. Uh, I got real into peanut butter. That was like my gateway to the RX bars. And uh, lately I've been real into the maple sea salt. comes in a yellow package. If you, uh, if you haven't tried the maple sea salt, I recommend it. They're all delicious, and uh, I've got them in my bag. I got them uh, in my drawer in my desk. I got them at home. I got RX bars everywhere. You should do the same. Go to rxbar.com longform. You'll get 25% off your first order. Again, that's rxbar.com. 
rxbar.com slash longform. I am so excited that they are sponsoring the show. Please, rxbar, keep sending me those delicious bars. But even if you don't, I'll keep paying for them because uh, I am addicted. You know what else I'm addicted to? Traveling. You know what I'm not addicted to? Checking hundreds of travel sites, freaking out because I think I'm not getting the best deal possible. That's why uh, lately I've been using tripping.com. With Tripping.com, one search lets you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and more. You don't have to worry if you're getting the best deal. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation with Tripping.com. And with Tripping.com, you're not renting hotel rooms. You're renting houses. You're renting a cabin upstate for the winter, place on the beach, maybe a uh, apartment, a flat, if you will. In Europe, Tripping.com lets you live like a local. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to Tripping.com slash longform today. That's Tripping, T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Kira. So what, what were the parts of the uh, of this garbage story that made your eyes light up or other people's eyes light up? You know, I think so kind of getting back to that thing about the kind of the long process of kind of understanding what the story needed to be about that like the stuff that made me say like, holy shit, or, you know, made other people say, holy shit was, you know, the stuff about like, oh, my God, I can't believe you know, I found like three guys who all lost a finger on the same fucking garbage truck at the same company. Like, I can't believe that. And that, in a sense, like that's juicy stuff. But ultimately, the things that like made me most, you know, feel deeply for another human being, which yeah. is what journalism and storytelling should be about, were the times when I kind of was invited into the private worlds of like these men often young men who would tell me about what they wanted to do with their lives and you know what they dreamed of doing and what they hoped to do and that they had these like ideas for what was possible in their life that would take them beyond the garbage truck and some of that made it into the story and some of it didn't but it just like killed me you know hearing people hearing guys or all men you know talk about looking at municipal workers in the department of sanitation and like thinking like oh those guys like that is the dream like those guys have it made you know they uh, like we look at them like you made it and like there's there's a a detail in the story where because it's true it made me realize this thing i never realized before which is that mostly the municipal like residential garbage men you see they're usually walking it's pretty cash like uh they've got time they've got time to do it and that's actually because it's uh super regulated and unionized the work is hard work but it's manageably structured and i forget who said it to you but one of the men that you spent time with was like i i'd love to work like that because the thing which we maybe haven't said exactly yet is this private world of garbage collection is pretty unregulated and 
as a result, companies make their money by maximizing the collection they can do in the shortest amount of time, which means that these trucks are racing around the city at night trying to do far more work than you can in an actual eight-hour shift. And the shifts extend to 9, 10, 11, 12 hours. 18, 23. <laughs> 18, yeah. 23. Um, and it's what, the fifth most dangerous profession? It is the fifth most fatal profession in America. It averages one fatality a week. So how did you get inside this world? Because it feels to me like it is both in the time of day in which it happens, but for also in all these other ways, it is set up to be unseen. Like it is designed to not be noticed. The short answer is that, like, you know, advocates make reporting possible and they should be acknowledged as such and they never get the credit they deserve in stories. But, you know, there is a very strong advocate community that has been working on this issue for, you know, many years and they'll be working on it for years after I leave the scene. So um, there's an advocacy kind of coalition called Transformed Own Trash, and uh, they're made up of like, New York lawyers for the public interest and the line and the Teamsters and all of these different like community groups. And so they all kind of take you into this world. So, you know, so it's a combination of both like, you know, advocates will connect you with workers who are willing to kind of like stick their neck out, basically. And then those workers will point you to other people who are like-minded. I mean, yeah, it's possible just to, you know, randomly approach people. And, like, some of the people who are in, like, class action lawsuits against these companies for wage theft, those were ones that I just kind of approached. It's helpful to hear you say that because I think, like, naively what I had in my head. I just went out there and I was yeah, like, was like, hey, man, just like, what's yeah, up? Like, yeah, <laughs> you were just like standing outside the like truck yard at, mm -mm. you know, 10 o'clock at night. Well, you know, the thing to remember is that people can't really talk to you very much when they're out working because they're rushing so much. And if they talk to you, it, you're going to slow them down. And also, you know, some of these trucks have cameras on them. And so they're like worried about getting caught or that kind of thing. And also that, like, actually it's much better if you go to their house or talk with them on the phone and, you know, when they can actually, you know, spend some time with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was hard, though, because on the one hand, people don't have that much time. Like, if you're working, you know, 60 or 80 weeks and you're exhausted, you, you might not want to spend, like, a couple hours with a reporter. Like, you have very limited time. If you have a family, you don't see them. You know, you don't leave the house very much. So... You smell like fucking garbage. Well, you know, actually, people are pretty meticulous. Like, I think, like, they get home and, like, you know, take a shower, like, immediately. Like, actually, this is one thing that was really interesting to me is that, like... So Anthony is one of the guys in the story who... The guy who goes from making not very much money at like a what you could call it low road company and then he gets his big break right and in this world it's like getting like a job that pays $22 an hour at like a union company where it's like you know it's pretty comparable to working at the department of sanitation you're still going to be picking up a lot more tonnage per night um lifting a lot more off the street per night than the department of sanitation like the job's harder but at least like you're making good money and but he uh, he's just an amazing guy. Like he's a germaphobe. 
<laughs> and I would just be like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, how you're a germaphobe? Like, how do you do this job? And he's like, he had this whole process of like, he's like, okay, well, you know, I, I take like the strawberry chapstick and I like put it like above my my lip, and so I, you know, I just tell myself the entire night like it smells like strawberries. It smells like strawberries. <laughs> Now I'm just like, ah, fuck, why didn't I, I should put that in the story. <laughs> but, you know, you have to pick your battles of things you can put into the story. So if the original idea was just to do like a ride along, basically, and do a little story about like, there's this world at night. I feel like those stories are done a lot, especially about New York. Like, it kind of felt to me like a subway tunnel story, you know, just like unseen New York. Mm. How does it spiral into what it became? Hmm. Well, yeah, it does kind of seem to spiral out of control. <laughs> I didn't say out of control. <laughs> oh, am I projecting? It's this therapy room again. Um. Well, so n- not that long ago, the story was about five thousand words. What? Did, where did it end up? Hmm. Closer to ten. <laughs> okay. So what happened? Um. So it was pointed out to me that I had turned in a story that, you know, it just had a very, very brief mention, uh, like like a half a sentence, like, you know, after the mob was purged from the industry, comma, <laughs> and then, you know, just kind of like moved on from there. Like there was just no like discussion of the mob or no anything like that about like the history of the industry. This was Tony Soprano's business. Yes, this is Tony Soprano's business. Um, and, you know, editors pointed out, like, you know, like, maybe you should add a paragraph or two. <laughs> and so, you know, I order a bunch of mob books and, you know, go talk to some people in the district attorney's office who, like, worked on the case and this and that. And, you know, and just trying to understand, you know, what what is the history of this industry? And then that became, like, another, like, holy shit part of it of, like, oh, wow, this industry is really not that <laughs> removed from the mob. <laughs> And it's also like this incredible New York story that like most people don't know about, myself included. Like every rock I looked under was like this part of New York that I had known nothing about that was always just hidden in plain sight. Can you walk people listening through the the mob part of this uh, quickly? (laughs) Quickly. Rewind to like three weeks ago when like like when I like trapped people at a party talking at the mob for like hours. Sorry. Tell me about the mob part of this that uh, that made people say holy shit at those parties. So, okay. So the history of the industry is that the private carters have been around since the early 1900s. And they used to just pick up the commercial trash in areas that were commercial alone. And the city picked up everywhere else where it was mixed residential commercial. So the city used to, before 1957, the city picked up both residential trash and commercial trash. Then they decided they like didn't want to have to deal with it. It was really expensive, too much trouble. So they overnight made businesses pay to have their garbage uh, collected. So that created an enormous market right away. And, you know, there's like, the thing about like garbage is that there's always garbage. <laughs> there's always money there. And it really doesn't take that much to pick up the garbage. Like you can just have like a truck and some guys. So overnight, the mob basically carved up the city into territory. 
And there are these different trade waste associations, as they were called. And those were controlled by the mob. And the trade waste associations determined like who got to pick up which stops and also would resolve disputes if like someone tried to move into someone else's territory and like steal. It was called stealing a stop from someone. So how this worked was that uh, the carters would collude with one another because they were all part of the cartel and they would submit these, you know, nearly identically priced, like very high bids. And so that like artificially inflated uh, the prices in the industry. And so, yeah, that, that was what was called the property rights system. Um, and it was enforced using, you know, threats of violence, actual violence, baseball bats, the occasional murder. And that continued merrily for like 50 years. Head of a uh, severed dog showing up on your doorstep is one deal, detail from your story. Yes. So it was just an open secret in New York that the mob picked up your trash and that the mob controlled the entire industry. And there were various efforts to try to break up mob control and prove that the mob was behind everything and those failed. So part of the kind of crazy not that not that long ago history is that in the uh, the early 90s when a national waste company tried to move into New York and, you know, try to get some business, an executive woke up one morning and found the severed head of a dog on his front doorstep with a note inside that read, Welcome to New York. That's a holy shit moment. Yeah, yeah. So how the mob eventually got broken up in their in their waste management monopoly. Yes. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office had this big undercover investigation. I I don't understand how this hasn't been made into a movie yet. Uh, there's this undercover cop who passed as Danny Benedetto in this carding company and he, you know, basically like infiltrated the trade waste associations which were mob controlled. Um and kind of uh, was wearing a wire for all this stuff and, you know, putting his life on the line because, you know, if you get, like, we've all seen The Sopranos. It was actually like that. The former head of investigations who talked to me for the story, I, I asked him, like, yeah, so to what extent was that actually, you know, representative reality? And I was expecting this totally qualified answer of, like, oh, well, you know, that's fiction, blah, 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 blah. He was like, oh, no, they got it right. <laughs> The mob is no no longer in control of the industry, but I mean, you go into a pretty good detail writing about these connections. Did it make you nervous? So this is like part of why like the mob section kind of spiraled out of control. And by out of control, I mean the section just kept getting longer and longer and longer. Is that, yeah, like a lot of people who were leaders in the cartel went to jail for not that long. <laughs> it's like a year, uh, you know, because they weren't on trial for like murder. So, like, everybody's out. And a lot of the people who were Trade Waste Association members, you know, they signed what's called a debarment agreement. And, you know, they then agreed to a ban from the industry and then gave their companies to their wives or their sons. Or a lot of the people who didn't sign those agreements, they're just still around and they're still running their companies. And once I, I put that piece of the puzzle together where I was like, whoa, like it's all the same people, like literally all the same people. And so 
I had kind of maybe been like a little bit naive and I had kind of been like, ha ha ha, like this is really funny. And, you know, someone who worked on that big carding case in the 90s was like, yeah, don't go, don't go see these people alone. And I kind of laughed and he's like, yeah, I'm not joking. <laughs> like bring somebody big. Did you do that? No, I made phone calls. <laughs> but, you know, but wait, what were we talking about again? I was asking <laughs> I was asking whether whether it made you nervous to write about uh the mob especially when so many of them are living and in the same borough as you. Mm. Well, I kind of I was just joking about this this morning that I haven't gotten my severed dog's head on my doorstep yet. So, I kind of feel like I'm not doing it right. You feel like you, you, you let them off the hook? Yeah. Yeah. Like I must have gone too easy. <laughs> like you haven't gotten the like Kira sleeps with the fishes note yet. So <laughs> Yeah. It's like. Well, I, yeah. I feel like you're not quite a- answering my question. Oh, okay. Did it make me nervous? Yeah. Mm. I will say that it didn't because I was being naive about it and I wasn't actually like I didn't realize until very late in the game how like the mob control of the industry isn't that it wasn't that long ago and like people aren't actually that removed mm-hmm. from the mob. And so I was kind of just thinking of, you know, the mob as it being this kind of like strictly historical thing. And it wasn't until pretty recently, you know, the mob stuff I kind of like did all, you know, in the last like month or something like that right before publication. And so it wasn't until I l- knew enough that I realized, like, maybe I actually should be a little bit more nervous (laughs) than I had been. Mm -hmm. And so, but then once you learn this and you realize that there's, like, this whole just, like, sewer, it just makes me want to go there. (laughs) You know, like, now I'm, like, obsessed with the mob and I want to continue writing about the mob. And, I mean, this is a thing that didn't make it into the story, but, you know, the carding case was, like, the last, like, big mob takedown case. That, and that was in, like, the mid to late 90s. And then September 11th happened, and then a lot of the city and state and federal forces that had been devoted to the five main crime families in the New York area got redirected to counterterrorism. So people were telling me, like, yeah, it's actually a great time to be the mob. <laughs> this is a mob. We're in a mob boom time? <laughs> yeah, it's it's boom time. Put really? your money in the mob. That's what people told in- me. Invest in the mob. Yeah, invest in the mob. I did not know that. Neither did I until very recently. You got to keep writing about the mob. I know. So this is a thing why I'm glad we're in this therapy space. Because, you know, there's this part of me that just wants to, like, become a mob reporter. <laughs> you should do that. <laughs> I know, right? Should I do that? Yes. See, the thing is, though, the thing that I realized that really motivates me in my stories is both there have to be, like, people doing bad things that are kind of in some ways out in the open, but in other ways, like, no one has any idea. Yeah, I mean, you have a history of writing sort of, like, institutional abuse stories. But those are exactly people doing bad things kind of out in the open. But there have to be, for a project to sustain my interest um, and, like, the kind of like obsessive passion that at least I have to have to carry a project for months slash years, (laughs) you know, that I have to feel like there are vulnerable people being screwed over in some way or that 
you know, there that there's like a clearly defined set of victims and people that I feel like, you know, like this story is for them. Why do you think you need that? Hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, I've talked about this with my investigative reporting friends that there's this kind of like weird schizophrenia of doing this kind of work. So on the one hand, you have to have the side of you that's really gleeful and that when you find out something terrible, you're like, yes, this is great. Then then the other side of that is that there has to be like the human part of you that you know deeply feels for people who are getting the short end of the stick, vulnerable, marginalized people who are on the receiving end of like the people doing the bad things. And, you know, ultimately, I think it's not enough for me to kind of feel that kind of like gleeful pursuit of people doing bad things in the world, basically, because, you know, I mean, like we live in New York. There's just like an endless litany of people abusing power, of like just people being shitbags, basically. And you have to pick something. You can't do it all. And you want to feel like you're doing some kind of like good in the world or at least kind of like you're helping someone. And that's ultimately like what I want my stories to do. I'm not like a traditional advocacy journalist in the sense of like, I'm not like, this is what needs to be done. And like, here's all the bad stuff. And like, this is what people should do about it. And like, I don't see it as my role just in part because like my brain just doesn't think in terms of, my brain just doesn't think in terms of solutions. But, <laughs> but you know, it's someone else's job to think through what should be done or how things should be. But it feels like your job to point out not just that there are shitbags, but there are people like on the other side of the shitbaggery. Yeah, I mean, like ultimately, like that's the heart of the story for me. Of any story I've done, it, there's always this part of like the editing process where, you know, I'm, you know, having a conversation with the editor being like, yeah, like we can't just focus on the people doing the bad things. Like really like the heart of the story are the people who are like victims in this. And then, like, the next part of that is, like, but also, like, people aren't just victims, actually. Like, you know, ultimately, the stories I do are about surviving and about people up against the forces larger than themselves. It's interesting hearing you say all that. And it also makes me wonder how it is that after doing a story like this, like, after spending so much time with those folks and thinking about them and thinking about trying to shine some light on their experience, how you detach from that. Hmm. Like, how do you do this work and then move on to the next thing? I think this is like the first story where like, I actually don't feel like I can detach from it just because it's like, I want to know what happens in these guys' lives. You know, like the the guy who became the main character of the story, like Alex, he's coming out of jail and I want to know what happens in his life. Like, it's like I, you know... When he told me, like, I think he, how he put it, he was like, all of us, we try to make it. And that, like, I just knew when I heard that, that, like, that, like, I didn't understand at that moment, like, the significance of what that meant. But I knew that that somehow was, like, the most important thing that, help, you know. Help me understand what that meant. 
that that meant that, you know, at the time he was like a driver for a garbage company and he meant that, um, you know, all of us, we try to make it. And so making it in his mind was getting like a better job at one of these companies where maybe it's like a union shop where people pay better or that that like golden ticket of you know, one of the 500 slots a year at the Department of Sanitation. But also I realized that like, as I talked with guys that like, I actually didn't know what making it meant to them and that that became like the most interesting parts of talking with guys was just like giving them an opportunity to tell me or to tell someone, you know, cause like a lot of them like you work overnight, you're working like crazy hours that like it's very isolating and you know, People don't in their daily lives ask them, like, you know, what do you dream of? What do you hope for? Like, what do you want to do in your life? Like that. And that's when people would just like totally open up. Like, yeah, like people will talk to you about, you know, like working like these crazy hours or they're like, you know, near death experiences. And like that's important. And like people want to talk about that because they want they understand that like most New York doesn't really know they even exist and that, you know, they're like risking life and limb every night for not that much money. And so, you know, they want people to know what that's like. But having like a space to like talk about what they hope for is like really, really important. And like that's like the best part about being a journalist is like you get to you get to like ask people these like super intimate questions that like I wouldn't even ask my friends like, you know, what do you dream of? Like, what do you secretly dream of? And people actually want an outlet to talk about these things. Like one, um, so this guy, Eric, um, you know, he's like number, you know, 60,000 on like the Department of Sanitation hiring list where it's just like, oh, my God, like this is never going to happen for you. You know, so I visited him at his house and it like turned out that like one of his roommates also worked for like a different garbage company. And they were like their house is like very dark because like they only go out during during, you know, they leave they only leave the house like when it's dark out, basically. And I was just there for just like hours. And ultimately, like the the roommate who also worked for a different company, like ended up kind of like pulling out like a couch kind of thing and was like, oh, yeah, like this is like therapy. Like, here, let me I want to take my turn. And so he like laid out on his ca- on this couch and was like talking to me about work and how he felt about it. And like, I think like ultimately, like this is a story about capitalism and how it crushes people. <laughs> but, you know, that like the things that are like the most important to guys like working in this world are that. Um, you know, like their boss like doesn't respect them or that like they're treated as disposable and that, you know, if someone like approaches them saying like, you know, like your feelings about your work are like valid, tell me about them, that that is like a a thing that people really welcome. Do you think that those guys were willing to open up to you only because they don't normally get asked, like only because it's rare that someone gives a shit or do you think that there's something about the way that you approached them and approach this story that allowed them to do so you know i've wondered that myself is it me or is it just like anyone you know is it just that like no one's really approached them i don't really have an answer to that i mean i don't in some sense i don't think i have like a special sauce but in other ways like i think there is a you know Every reporter is their own person. You know, like you have your reporting personality 
And、um, what's your reporting personality? I used to think that it was a problem that I'm not like more buttoned up. You know, I used to like have like a lot of anxiety about you know like I don't seem like a, an investigative reporter. I don't seem super serious. You know, I laugh a lot. <laughs> um, but ultimately, like my reporting personality is like increasingly like it's just me. <laughs> you know, it's just I want like I want to be real with people, and like the number one rule of reporting is just to like be a human being to other people. You know, it's not that like. Be decent, be kind, like use the golden rule, and also like remember that like the rules are very different when you're reporting on vulnerable people.、Um, you know, like make sure people understand what they're getting themselves into, and、um, you know even if people say it's okay for you to use things, like go back and make sure you know be like, but really is it like、mm-hmm. here? Like this is the implications of this. Like are you sure you know you don't want to be anonymous? Like are you sure? You're、like maybe I shouldn't use that, but it was hard though because you know I wanted I wanted to be professional enough to show people that I respected them, and I wanted to like make it look li- like I wanted to. I mean, I, I, that was one thing that was like hard for me. I was like, well, how do I dress with, like reporting in this world? Like I don't like I want I want to show people that like I respect them and that like they're getting like. A professional treatment, like a politician would get, or this or that, while also being like, "Well, my reporting style is not interviews. It's like extended hanging out." And I stole this. I like this word so much. Like in Oklahoma, people will say, "Oh yeah, you can come visit with me," and like so you just like you just say, "Oh, can I come visit with you?" And like that just means like hanging out for、right. a very long time, and like that's ideal. How'd you dress? Um. I think just like n- nothing, nothing special. Just like you know,、um, uh, pants. You <laughs> you landed on、uh, wear pants. I think I think it's a good choice. I mean, grand grand scheme of things, you want to you want to wear pants. I think. I I think I probably just ruined your levels with that one. I got um I got two more questions for you, then I'll let you go. Oh, okay. One thing I was thinking about a lot while I was reading the story and rereading it was, why do you think it hadn't been done before? Hmm. You know, I think there had been there had been like some local reporting on it about like this is a super dangerous job and this is how like unregulated it is, but I think in some in part like it's really hard like the stuff that. You know, I did about like like a lot of like the property records stuff, a lot of the the mob stuff. I mean, by hard, I mean time consuming, and、mm-hmm. like you, I mean, it, it takes so long to just kind of be like, oh, that that looks like someone's sister or the or their their son.、Um, they have the same name, but like, how do you actually prove that? And I love it. I mean, I'm I'm like left to my own devices. I will never stop reporting, and I will just like like days. Well, I'll I'll just like go down this like rabbit hole and just be gleeful. Like、uh, you get it. I, I'll take I'll take part of the answer being that it's hard, but people <sighs> do hard stories all the time. Wait, yeah. Like I I wondered why in a city which like、uh, so is saturated home, with is、media. home to right thousands of magazine writers. Why didn't some editor somewhere be like, 
what's up with this? What's the deal with your trash? <laughs> yes. This like, is crazy. Yeah. That is, that. like, why do you think that didn't happen? Maybe another way of asking that question is, like, was this a hard, it, you wrote it for ProPublica with funding from the investigative fund. Like, why oh wasn't this God. in some magazine? Yeah. So, okay, there are a couple different parts of that answer. One is that there's so many journalists here and so much media. There actually isn't a ton of coverage of New York. I mean, increasingly, like a lot of like the outlets are, you know, getting shut down. Like, like the village, like this would have been like an amazing village voice story yeah. like 10 years ago. But like the village voice, like it's online only now. And it's like, it's a tragedy. Like what's happened to New York City media and like coverage of New York. And that, yeah, there's still like great people doing daily stories about New York, but there's there's not as much like in-depth report, uh, you know, investigative reporting on New York as like there should be mm-hmm. given like or how or like how much you would expect. Right. Um, so that's part of it. I think the other part is that it is really, really, really hard to do a labor story. And by do hard to do a labor story, I mean hard to get a publication to assign a labor story. Why do you think that is? I honestly don't know. This was the hardest story I've ever had to place. Really? Uh, yes. And I think it's like the best story I've done, actually. And I think it's like... It's, I'm so surprised to hear that. It, this is... It was an epic journey, Max. <laughs> Tell me about that journey. I wish I had a better understanding of why it's so hard to place a labor story. And by labor story, I mean like a story that like gives a fucking shit about workers and like poor people of color, which is like what the story is about. You know, like this is a story about like poor people of color getting like trapped in these like shit dangerous jobs. And it's hard to get a publication to sign on to that. You know, I heard I heard a lot, you know, lots of people like, oh, this is a really important story, but it's too local. You know, oh, this is like a local, like, newspaper story. Or like, this, is, this, should, this sounds like a local thing. Like, we're a national magazine. And, you know, and I didn't quite understand that because I'd be like, no, this is a story about America. Like, this is a story about, like, the end of the American dream. And, like, how New York is, like, a perfect case study in that. Like, how is that a local story? Like, this is... It's that, and it's also a story about the mob, and it's about like the secret way your city works. I just, I know, maybe I, it's a pretty good story. Maybe I suck at pitching. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, my pitches are beautiful editors. <laughs> <laughs> um, so ah, but you know, ultimately, like it was a perfect investigative fun story, you know. Esther Kaplan at the iPhone, like, just, like, got this, like, from the very beginning. And, like, as my understanding of the story changed over time, like, she got that, too, as I'd be like, no, no, it's about, like, hopes and dreams. <laughs> and, like, at the end of the day, it was a ProPublica story. Like, that is, like, the place yeah. that would do a story like this. Yeah, that's, like, the whole point of ProPublica. Yeah, it is. Well, I'm glad that you said um, hopes and dreams, because this is my last question. I don't know how I cannot ask you this question after... You speaking so eloquently about what it was like to ask those guys about their hopes and dreams. Um, so, uh, Kira, 
<laughs> no, don't look at me like that. Are you asking me my hopes and dreams? Yes, ma'am. You know, it doesn't seem believable when I'm like, oh, I've never really, like, no one's ever really asked me that. You know, I guess, like, ultimately, the, the main thing I hope for is to be able to tell stories that make people feel f something for other human beings. And that's why I do what I do. I want other people to feel stuff. I want people to care about the things that I care about. So... I do hope I can continue to do that and get better at it, but like also hope to be like a better like human being as I go about that and like, be more decent to people. And also, you know, these stories are so all-consuming, and like I really I can't account for myself <laughs> for like what I did in like the months uh, as I was finishing this story. And I think I was a shitty friend to people and kind of, you know, did not, I was not a proper human being. And like, so it's like, how, you know, how do you do this work while, without being consumed by it? And that's something that I hope to figure out. <laughs> Good luck with that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that could happen. You know what I should do at the next party I'm at? I should, I should uh, run some ideas by someone. <laughs> Kira, thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, RxBar, Tripping.com, and, of course, our friends at MailChimp. And thanks so much to uh, Kira Feldman for taking the time. Her incredible story, it's called Trashed. You can find it in the show notes or at ProPublica.org. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta.